Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I'm joined by Chef David Jackman. He is the founder, co-founder, co-owner of Wildweed Pasta with his wife, Lydia Jackman. Uh, They're based out of Cincinnati, Ohio. I first learned about David really through Instagram, but then also he was doing a bunch of different pop-ups and stuff too as well, and eventually wound up doing a pop-up at Iris Reed which we've had Dan Souter on the podcast a couple times so far. Just kind of a bunch of different places he was doing pop-ups, and it looks super intriguing, super unique. Uh, you can find him every Sunday at Mighty Good, which is in the Over the Rhine neighborhood, the OTR in Cincinnati, Ohio. I think 1 to 7 is when they're open, and they're usually slinging different pasta dishes. Uh, the menu kind of changes every week, and they post it on their Instagram and everything. But David's had a fascinating career. I mean, he's Canadian, wound up in Vancouver, working for a number of different years, eventually wound up here in the U.S., um, worked at Please in Cincinnati, even worked in Nashville. He was actually the 4.5 chef of the Capward Seat in Nashville, Tennessee, which if you know anything about the Capward Seat, usually a chef does like a two-year residency there almost. And he was kind of the chef that did after Will and Liz, who were the previous co-executive chefs at the Cabaret Seat, they left like right before kind of COVID happened. So David stepped in, was running the Cabaret Seat, then COVID happens, and then Brian Baxter, who's also been on this podcast, takes over. So he's kind of in this middle area where people don't really realize like, hey man, you were running the Cabaret Seat. I know it was only a couple months, but like you were going to be the guy, you were the guy for a little bit at that restaurant. And he's worked at a bunch of different places in Vancouver, which is one of our favorite cities. Just had a great experience there the time that we visited and eating and can't wait to go back. But you can find him on Instagram at Chef David Jackman, also at Wildweed Cincy, and that's Cincy with an I, so C-N-C-I, uh, all one word there. They have been having a couple issues with their Instagram account. Apparently, Instagram's been like throttling them and kind of taking down their account and whatnot. So make sure you follow his personal account too as well, because he does push out the menu and also, you know, different pop-up events and stuff that they're doing either around Cincinnati or up here in Columbus or wherever. That way you don't miss it uh, as soon as he's kind of in your neck of the woods uh, if you're not based out of Cincinnati yourself. You can follow us on Instagram too as well, at SpoonMob. We're on all the other social medias, but mainly the Instagram is the one that we use. So make sure to follow us there. Check out our website, spoonmob.com. We put up different profile pages for every guest that we've had on the podcast, whether they're a chef, a restaurant owner, or sommelier. So we haven't broken out into categories, but all the contact information's there. Any updates since they've been on the podcast is there. We put up different food photos from their restaurant that we've, you know, had the pleasure of being firsthand experiences for. Um, We put those up there too as well. Those all eventually make their way to Instagram, but they usually go on the website first. Uh, You can write in any question, comments, feedbacks through the contact page on the website too as well, or directly uh, spoonmob at yahoo.com is our email. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from, whatever platform that you use. We're on all of them except for Pandora. That's the only one that you can't find us on. Just search Spoon Mob on whatever platform that you use, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google. We're on everything. And that way all the new episodes will drop right in your feed. New episodes come out Thursdays, 1 a.m. Then we put them up on YouTube a week later. This month we were trying to do two episodes every week. We kind of ran into just some scheduling conflicts and stuff like that for this week. So we weren't able to get one out on Tuesday, but we got one out as always on Thursday. And then next week we should be able to do a Tuesday, Thursday for you guys. So a little break in the middle of kind of our Merry Christmas uh, present to all our dedicated listeners. 
But without any further delay, here's my conversation with Chef David Jackman, the founder, chef, owner of Wildweed Pasta based in Cincinnati, Ohio. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of your day. I know your days are chaotic and all over the place because you run a pop-up currently right now, Wildweed in Cincinnati, which I want to talk about because you've been doing a lot of different stuff. You have a standing kind of pop-up at uh, Mighty Good in the OTR, I think uh, one to seven on Sundays. But first learned about you when you originally took over at Pearl Star when they first opened, and and now you're obviously doing your pop-up. Let's start at the beginning of your career. It's kind of where I always start with everybody. I mean, how did you first kind of get involved with cooking? Because originally you're from Winnipeg, right? Yeah, correct. So cooking wasn't really something I got into because I was passionate about it or any of the traditional ways that you would get into cooking. I was more of the young troublemaker and it was a means to an end uh, at the start of my career. So it would be uh, a way to afford drinks after work and you start as a dishwasher. The thing that I always heard from another chef, a friend of mine had worked for, and I had heard this quote years before I even actually met the guy, onwards and upwards, you know, every position you take, try to create uh, an opportunity that's a little higher and a little more ahead uh, from the last position you took. Even as a dishwasher, I kind of saw that as like a, a pretty sensible thing to do in your life. You set yourself with goals to, you know, maybe have an apartment or, you know, live in a certain neighborhood. And at, you know, a young age of, I started cooking at 14. That was kind of the pipe dream at a very young age. So I kind of just fell into cooking because I started as a dishwasher and, and slowly each position was, oh, and all of a sudden you're a prep cook and all of a sudden you're on the line and you're working salad station or pizza station in a wood-fired restaurant. And then all of a sudden you're doing the hotline and you're a saucier. And then by the time I actually fell in love with it, I was already deep into it. It wasn't even really like you got into it because some mother or grandmother or element of passion kind of drug you into this thing. It was just a means to an end at the start and you slowly grow into it. Now, you never went to culinary school, right? No. So I had two chances of going to culinary school. I went back to adult ed to get my high school equivalent. Uh, I was 19. The goal of actually going to uh, culinary school. The first one I applied to was the Culinary Institute of America. And as a Canadian, that's pretty hard to financially justify. You don't get the student aid that you would as like a, an American student and, and you don't have the ability to do work placements to help cover your costs without a visa. So as far as that went, my parents said, no, I'm not going to help you pay for it. We can't afford that anyways. And so I decided to go to a second option in Toronto. And that would have been uh, George Brown College in Toronto. And so I applied. I was waiting for an answer. I thought I figured I'd be a shoe in if I could get an application into the CIA and get accepted. I surely could get into George Brown College in Toronto. Little did I know I'd show up to Toronto with $800 in my pocket. No chance for school. But fortunately, I, the Toronto Life magazine came out with uh, their best restaurants of the year list. That's their big publication in Toronto that kind of showcases uh, chefs and, and restaurants. I just went down the list and walked with my resume to each one of those restaurants and applied. The number two, I believe it was, best new restaurant in Toronto, I got a job at. It was a team of three cooks, including myself. The chef told me, can you come back and do a stage? And I said, when? He's like, how about in two hours? I didn't have my knives. I didn't have my jacket. I was staying on a friend's couch. So I ran. 
I didn't have any money. I ran to, to the place that I was staying, ran back and then did service. And I think it was just that dedication that through not only that position, but most positions, if you're willing to do the work, someone's willing to teach you. I spent a good year and a half there. And by the time I was truly in that position, I didn't see a benefit in culinary school. I had already had students coming from out of culinary school and working under me. Based on your career and everything that's evolved, if someone was to ask you over the course of one of your pop-ups or something, you know, hey, I'm interested in becoming a chef. Do you think I should go to culinary school? What would you tell them? I'd be hard-pressed to say immediately, yes, you should go to culinary school. I've actually had someone come to me recently and say like, oh, I'm about to start the Culinary Institute of America in, in the fall. My response to that was, that's great if you learn that way and if you can afford it, that's a great way of getting the resources you need to get to the next step of your career. That being said, you can get those resources in another way. I think especially now where our industry is so thinned out on willing participants to, to truly want to grow in the industry and not just work in it. I think anyone with a drive who has a drive that wants to go spend three or four years in a culinary school is going to benefit from three or four years in the industry a little stronger. So long as they have the resilience to make it through that first year, I think it's honestly a better opportunity. I think most people who enter culinary school, they'll leave culinary school needing to do that first year where they rip a Band-Aid off and need to grow within a position unless they've done, you know, placements and internships that have actually given them the tools that the student needs to grow. But I think more and more chefs are stretched thinner and thinner and don't have those tools and aren't able to give those tools uh, to their staff, not to mention their students as they walk in their doors. So how'd you wind up in Vancouver? Because you're in Toronto, you're working at this restaurant, but a good chunk of your career is in Vancouver. So I speak French, très bien, uh, première langue française et anglais, uh, both languages, bilingual. My mother was French, so, so I was raised with both languages. I saw in Canada as I grew in the industry and grew and learned from different restaurants. Um, I left Winnipeg fairly young and then again at 19 when I wanted to truly, you know, get into the industry and take it a little more seriously. I worked in a great restaurant in Toronto. From there, I went on to do a number of stages in New York City, one of which was uh, Blue Hill in Manhattan. Um, the other would have been uh, at a voce with uh, Missy Robbins at the Time Warner Center, which at the time had a Michelin star. And I didn't really see going back to Toronto as something I wanted to do. I kind of felt like I had grown into a really great restaurant there, but I was kind of just a stepping stone to get to New York as I was navigating my next step to get to New York because visas fell through. Uh, the financial situation was not easy for a young cook to move cross borders. I can tell you even as a married man with a, a budding restaurant and a pretty good resume and decent ability to get a job, it wasn't easy enough to afford a, a visa even then. But I saw Vancouver kind of as a gateway to New York. At the time, Jean-Georges had a restaurant there. Danielle Ballou had a restaurant there. And I figured if I can get into some of these restaurants, this would actually allow me to step away from Canada, but maybe make a transitional move rather than trying to just break my way into a new restaurant community. So your long-term goal was to get into basically a big city restaurant scene, preferably in America. 
and that's not just for the fact that it's American or whatnot. It was based on, you know, where can you chase Michelin stars and learn from some of the best chefs and be the best uh, chef you can be? How do you grow to be who you want to become as a young chef? And to do that, you need to chase things such as Michelin stars, such as named chefs with, you know, good reputations and incredible restaurants. And I saw a few different markets that you can do that in. You can do that in Chicago. You can do it in New York on a larger scale. And then you can do it in a very different environment in the Bay Area. We didn't have D.C. We didn't have Los Angeles as part of the Michelin Guide. We didn't have, you know, the uh, New York State being extended and getting recognition in other parts of the market. We also didn't have the restaurants that now exist in restaurant or in, in restaurant cities like Nashville or any city that has a budding culinary scene. It, we it just didn't exist 15 years ago when I was entering restaurants and the places you heard about, whether it be a publicist that got that into a publication or the start of celebrity nature of what restaurants have become. We just didn't have that. A young chef, I'll take the risks. I used to do riskier things. I used to hitchhike across Canada all the time. I used to hop a couple trains. My mother knows about it, so I don't need to be too quiet about it now. It seemed like going to New York and sleeping on a couch or in a hostel for uh, as long as I can until I couldn't afford anything wasn't the most risky thing I could do because I'd done riskier. So I think kind of the first place you wind up when you're in Vancouver is Merchant's Workshop, right? So that was the first place that I took over as executive chef. But actually, I had been working with someone for about two and a half years on and off before that. Her name's Andrea Carlson. She was a huge mentor to me. And she actually just recently, as uh, Michelin announced their Vancouver Guide, got her first Michelin star, which she was one of the eight restaurateurs um, awarded, a, awarded a star. So she was, um, at the time, uh, the chef of a restaurant called Bishop's. It was a farm-to-table restaurant on West 4th. It was a little antiquated, white tablecloth, a little stuffy, but everything was seasonal and everything was from a farm and everything was driven by the best of the best that the city had to offer. Um, she was a little bit of, uh, I would say, antithetical to that kind of style of dining, but every element of the talent to, to execute it. And so as I left to go travel Asia for about five months, I came back and I helped actually open the restaurant she was just awarded a star with. And in that time, I actually helped her navigate running a and managing a small ramen shop and grocery store um, in Chinatown. And um, and then helped tile the bathrooms and build all the chairs in her now amazing restaurant, Burdock & Co. She's since opened another wine bar doing natural wine. And that's really incredible as well. I can't wait to see it. So I actually worked with her for three years before I even went off on my own and did ran a restaurant. And at that time, when I stepped down from Burdock & Co., I was navigating uh, going to work at Atelier Crenn and Restaurant at Meadowood in California. I did that for as long as I could. I was in both those restaurants for as long as I could, staging until I didn't have any money in my bank account. And I'd come back with no money and no place to live and <laughs> just figure it out as long as I can. That's been a pretty continuous thread of like, maybe I'll get a visa if I stay long enough and someone's going to, you know, fight for me. And so I spent a good couple months down there working in each of those restaurants. I remembered the last day I was coming from Atelier Crenn. I walked back to my hostel. I literally had no money to even grab lunch. I got a phone call from an old friend. Uh, so the old friend had both been the person who took my resume one day in Toronto at, you know, walking 
around looking at all of these incredible restaurants and trying to get a job. His father was uh, the owner of a number of restaurants in Winnipeg that he was my manager at one of them. um, And we had a close relationship for a number of years. And he calls me and he said, I'd really like you to take over as chef of Merchants, Merchants Oyster Bar. I said, no. (laughs) And uh, I didn't want to run an oyster bar. I wanted to run, you know, really incredible restaurants. Then he said, well, I'll give you carte blanche on the menu so long as you can control the costs. And it's not a chef de cuisine role. It's an executive chef role. I said yes, reluctantly. But uh, over the next year and a half, I took a Greyhound back. I got enough money to get a Greyhound back. I showed up, I threw the chef's cards in the garbage, and I got to work. It took a year and a half, but we built that into a very lively restaurant. It was 35 seats, 55 if you included the patio in the summer months. And uh, the kitchen was the smallest kitchen I've ever worked in. If you were calling the pass, you were simultaneously in between two stations and probably washing dishes at the same time because the dish machine was right behind you. And the stove was a home stove that was uh, repeatedly replaced as it would break because obviously a home stove does not do the volume you need. My first stint as executive chef, it was not the most glamorous, but I'll take it. Your career in Vancouver kind of materializes it seems to kind of go back and forth between restaurant pop-up, restaurant pop-up, kind of back and forth. So is that just kind of set off and want to do something different and start a pop-up and then this opportunity with the restaurant? Because you wind up doing, I think, uh, Atelier Nomadique, which was a pop-up that you had, but you also worked at Hawksworth at one point. So like the pop-ups weren't necessarily always outside of also having jobs in restaurants. So I found in Vancouver and especially in Canada, making enough money to actually live was challenging. I mean, even as an executive chef, your wages aren't that high, not compared to the cost of living. And if you compare them into the American market, now that I know more clearly what people make in the in both countries, they weren't that high either. Part of that was trying to f- navigate and figure out the pathway to owning my own restaurant as a young chef. And I was, you know, a young executive chef at 25. And I'm now nearly a decade older than that. And it was always, how can I get something of my own open? How can I build something of my own? And so anytime I would hit a point where, you know, this position might be the time for me to move on and whether I stayed long enough or should have stayed longer, it was always punctuated by how do I make this into an opportunity that I will be able to take on my own project? Because anytime you walk into a restaurant, I ran a great restaurant called Chinara. It was great, but it was Northern Italian themed. I'm not Italian. My pasta isn't Italian. None of my food is particularly Italian beyond the fact that I do noodles. For instance, when I was at Hawksworth, it was an incredible opportunity that I probably jumped into pretty quick, not realizing how little resources I would have. I ran their private events and catering operations. When I was doing a pop-up, David Hawksworth came in and actually met me and brought a chef from Los Angeles to eat the food at my pop-up. And he was like, hey, I'd really like to chat about you know an opportunity if you'd like to. It was an interesting opportunity. And I spent six months doing the position. It was 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I asked for a little more money. It never happened. Asked for a little more support in terms of staff. It never happened. And private events were doing three to four events some days. 
in different parts of the city with numerous vans and we didn't even have our own prep kitchen at the time. I know now their their team has a whole production facility. We worked out of a hallway in the at the top of an elevator that kept breaking in the Rosewood Hotel Georgia. So it was fine, but every Monday that kind of hit us and it was a day off and as soon as you did your week of events and you had your one day off, you would have calls from the sales team on Monday trying to push as many caterings into your schedule as possible. It really felt like, you know, anytime you finally caught up, you you didn't have the time anymore. And I think that's interesting because it's it's helped form something that I've learned over time about our industry that if you don't provide people that work with you the tools to be the best versions of themselves, then you're just going to burn them out and you're going to get that turnover. And it would take me years to understand why that would happen in a, in a situation like that, because you'd lose the passion. And, and I'm if I'm not passionate about a job, I don't want to be there. And I think a lot of people are a lot more willing to to stick with a job longer, uh, even if they're not passionate. And, and that's kind of formed this like falsity of like, if you're going to work in the industry, you need to do a year at each place. But if you're not growing and you're not happy and you're not actually inspired, that could also just push you out of the industry if you're forcing yourself to do a year here and a year there. As far as punctuating it, I had a really great time at Merchants for a year and a half. I actually left Vancouver for a little while. My I had a family member that was ill and in the hospital. I ran a hotel back home in Winnipeg. It was a boutique hotel with a 275-seat restaurant, uh, and I ran the re- restaurant component. So uh, learned a bit, a bit of scale, but also I only worked, you know, 50 hours a week and I walked away and I would walk in the bushes and pick mushrooms on my days off and and do pop-ups because the restaurant wasn't that inspiring as far as the food goes because I couldn't really lean from the concept was which was like centered around the idea of like craft in New York. It was called Smith. Pop-ups were were naturally just at that point a means to be creative on top of my job. When I left there, I decided to go take on a couple more stints in America because I had saved a bit of money. I was running a hotel. I went to Grace in Chicago, which was a three-star, moved on towards a catbird seat where I met Trevor Moran and worked under him for about six months until he left his post and I decided to return to Canada and and start figuring out what I was going to do for the next little bit because I didn't want to leave Nashville. But uh, when I did, I I also didn't want to continue doing the job with a chef that I had helped navigate their menu. And I did a trial to see if we worked well together. And I just didn't see us being eye to eye. When you're in the Vancouver restaurant scene, and you want to open your own restaurant one day with a city like that, with the cost of living, and there's numerous examples, but Brandon Grissetti was on his podcast, and he talked about just how hard it is to staff his restaurant there. He's the only one that I've ever seen that has come up with a delivery model that will actually work. But With Vancouver, when you want to become a chef, you want to open your own restaurant, is it you need to find somebody that's going to fund you? Or is it, you know, hopefully if you work at some place like Hawksworth that has this reputation that there'll be a connection there between somebody who's opening a new restaurant project and it's like, well, who could we tap? Well, oh, what about one of these three people at Hawksworth, the executive sous chef or a CDC, or we could bring those people in for an interview. Like, is that pretty much the game at that point? Like either, you know, somebody's got financing or like you have to kind of hope that if you work long enough at one of these more well-known restaurants that somebody who's going to open up a new concept will reach out? 
I think there's a number of paths and none of them are, are necessarily the one path to get to the result. And I don't even know if the path I'm taking right now is going to end in fully opening the restaurant. We can hope it makes it that way. Definitely further along in the process than I ever have. Um, in a market like Vancouver, I don't know if I ever would have been able to afford to open my own. And I think I would have needed to give up far too much of my business to allow for myself to do the things that I would need. There are a few people that are a little more generous in business that might, you know, give you a portion of the business in trade for making sure you're not going to jump away from that business long term. And I think that would probably be the simplest model to get into owning a restaurant, but you would only own a small portion of it. It's more profit sharing than equity than anything. And so when I was in Vancouver, I saw an opportunity to do pop-ups as how do I build something from small and hopefully people will catch on as I'm going. I mean, I think I had a vastly different idea of how much it takes to open a restaurant at 25 than I do now at you know 34. I don't think that the ways I was approaching it might, might have been the, the most successful means to, to get to that. And yeah, of course, there is the way of, you know, working for a restaurant for, you know, five years and being their stud. And, you know, someone's like, oh, I really want to make sure this guy's. But I think at that point, you're actually having people want to open their restaurant. It's not them wanting to open yours. And there's a lot of chefs that are fine with that. If they just want to operate a, a successful restaurant and have all the teams that they need around them to do all the things they do, they want to run a restaurant and own it. For me, that was never the idea. Most of what my desire to open a restaurant is, is to write a story rather than to collect the profit. The profit will come. That happens. That's what restaurants do. If it doesn't turn a profit, you're failing. And if you don't make enough to support yourself, then it's definitely not feasible. I found like always the, the intrigue of opening a restaurant and operating a restaurant has never been the financial side because if it was, I would do a different job within our industry. I would oversee 20 concepts at once or build uh, systems that, that allow for industry-wide progress. But I find being a storyteller and capturing time and place more interesting and, and connecting with people and guests far more interesting than, than just the P&Ls. And the P&Ls are important and I dig my face into them as much as I can to make sure that they're going to operate as well as it can. But whenever you're working with someone, it's, it's more about the P&L and less about the story. I've always wanted to tell stories. Building a restaurant for me has always been about how do I go unrestricted to tell stories and maybe make a few mistakes along the way, but truly create a space that's going to be a little more special than your average restaurant. So how do you get from Vancouver, then I think you wind up in Cincinnati, then you wind up in Nashville, then you wind up back in Cincinnati. So for somebody who's staged at these places in New York, you staged at Grace, Atelier Cren, Restaurant of Meadowood, a Single Thread, I think you were at for a little bit too. All these kind of big Michelin star restaurants that we have now, and you wind up in Cincinnati and Nashville. So how did all that kind of come to fruition? I was in Vancouver. I was running a restaurant called Farmer's Apprentice in Grapes and Soda under Dave Gunnowin. He uh, created this incredible farm-to-table restaurant. Uh, we did whole animal butchery. We would only source through farmers, much like most of the restaurants that have kind of gone through the thread of what I've done with my career, because that is, you know, my passion, keeping my money within my community, supporting farmers, uh, doing, doing it responsibly, telling a story through time and place in the season, and then sharing it with a guest in that season. I was in Vancouver. 
and I was running this restaurant and Dave Gunnowin said, hey, we've got this uh, really great opportunity for, to bring in an international chef. We've been drawn to choose someone from America. Is there someone you might want to bring? And Trevor Moran was incredible. He's most recently opened Locust. That I was part of the opening team and, and helped him as head chef to open Locust, which just won Food & Wine's best new restaurant in the year. Um, he was in between opening Locust and his time that he was running Catbird Seat when I was with him. And I hadn't talked to him for a while. He had had a child. And my boss was like, hey, would you think of you know wanting to invite someone like Trevor? I've heard nothing but great things about his food. I said, yeah, I, I can reach out. And so um, we actually invited Trevor to, to Vancouver and we did a dinner that was essentially taking our restaurant over and turning it into Catbird at that time, just using local products instead. So we had, you know, sea urchin fresh out of the water that morning. Um, we had incredible root vegetables because it was, it was a little chilly. I think it was January of the year. I may be mistaken, but I, I remember the farmer's market, everything felt crisp. And we did a bunch of dinners. We went out to eat a bunch. We had a really great time. And in that time, we had discussed opening Locust together. And I said, that sounds great. A little time goes by. We communicate. I travel to Nashville just to say, hey, Trevor, let's hang out. I stay at his house. I went to go see a concert. It was Margot Price and Coulter Wall at the Ryman. It just made a good, fun trip to Nashville. It felt like coming home in some ways. In that trip, I met my wife, my now wife. She was working at Dino's, <laughs> the classic dive bar in East Nashville, cooking burgers. And I met her there. And maybe I was a little crude, but we won't go into that story. But the next night I took her out for a drink and she almost canceled on me. But once we did connect and, and actually sat down and had a drink, we realized there's something here. We didn't know how to quantify it. I lived in Canada. She lived in Nashville. It was something. We weren't the traditional type of people that would meet each other and, and whatnot. Um, and she was far more than a burger cook. She worked in really incredible restaurants uh, with the company that I had worked for. She had actually worked for Trevor at La Celle when he was helping consult with strategic hospitality there. Uh, she was part of the opening team and came back during the pandemic as well uh, to work with Julia Sullivan at Henrietta Red which she coins as a huge inspiration to her. And I agree. I love Julia so much and I love her food so much. It's craveable, delicious, and a huge respect for her oyster program. It's unparalleled in this area. So, so I met her there and then I went in to eat at Henrietta while she was there. And we went on a date and I went back to Vancouver and said, I guess this is, you know, not going to happen, but maybe it was great to meet you kind of thing. She was in the midst of moving to Cincinnati uh, in two weeks later. She ended up uh, moving to go work at Please. They were always looking for people and she joined the team there. I came back to Vancouver and actually was let go from my job. <laughs> which I kind of started to suspect something was happening while I was away because I wasn't being communicated with. I came back and within four days, my employer was an interesting guy. He, uh, we sat down and he's like, you know, a year ago, you set out some goals for yourself on, on what to learn here with me. And I think you've learned them. And I think it's time for you to move on <laughs> with no warning. And I was like, wow, okay, all right. So in that time, I was let go and I actually decided to help uh, shut down merchants, my first restaurant that I, I ever ran. They were about to announce they were closing. They were an industry hotspot. What I had set them off on a trajectory to be uh, had bloomed into something far bigger than what I was, which was incredible. And then I got to kind of close it up with one of my best friends. In that time, it was three months. We did probably two or three collaboration dinners every night, a different menu all the time. We were doing tasting menus. I could definitely tell, you know, the kitchen was no longer <laughs> capable of holding on to that. 
but we knew we were aiming to close. And so I stuck around and helped close the restaurant. I kind of just felt like, I don't know, I was tired of jumping around Vancouver. I loved the place, but I felt like there wasn't really a lot of growth opportunities for a chef to move into, you know, ownership. I didn't feel like I was growing professionally as much as I wanted to. So I was actually navigating moving to France. I had applied for a visa. I went back home in the months of waiting and waiting and waiting, nothing happened. And I was waiting for a visa and was talking to my now wife, Lydia. She was in Cincinnati and she's like, yeah, you should come visit. You should come visit. I knew nothing about Cincinnati. I knew Jerry Springer was the mayor at one point. I knew the airport was in Kentucky. That's about it. Honestly, I bought a ticket a little blindly. I went and we decided to make a go of it. I loved the city. I still love the city. I love her. We now have a beautiful 15-month-old daughter. Everything about that was just, how do we build a, our lives here then? Um, so I went to Montreal thinking, oh, maybe it's a closer destination. We can do this long-term or long-distance and whatnot. And eventually I found some loopholes that would allow me to apply for a visa almost immediately by getting married pretty quickly. We traded for our wedding space. We Within 90 days? Did you have to do it in 90 days? They give you the impression that it's 90, but it's actually 180. So I went back to Vancouver, made a little money, came back. We got married. I started working under the table a little bit at a, at a place. Realized that, you know, I would have to do that for a little while. Didn't realize the visa process was going to take over a year. So I, I actually spent a large, heavy year uh, waiting for, for a visa after we had applied for it. And uh, taking a little bit of a step back in my career and kind of being humble and working for someone else and doing pop-ups on the side again because it was a means to, you know, support ourselves a little better. And, um, and that's how we started doing pasta. I had grabbed the old pasta machine from uh, Merchants, the, the hand crank restaurant pasta machine, and I brought it with me and we started doing, you know, two or three pastas every week in Cincinnati at the wine bar that my wife eventually became the executive chef at called Oakley Wines. We called it Sunday Sauce. And every Sunday, it was a different menu of two vegetarian pastas and one that's based around meat or fish or, or whatnot. And so we gained a really good following. And it was mostly restaurant workers who were off on a Sunday afternoon and wanted to you know enjoy a great flight of wine and, and a few pastas. Moving from that, I ended up getting my visa. I was working at Please Restaurant as well. I was the sous chef. I was writing menus. We had no staff because the owner couldn't retain them. We all know what that means. We had a constant rotating door to the point where some nights I was running three stations and calling the pass and he was cooking the other two. I kind of just didn't see any longevity in it, wanted to figure out what to do next. Cincinnati, as much as I love it, has not been a place where I've found there was much for me to step into as a role and grow in. We were visiting Trevor again in Nashville. I was actually watching his daughter. We were watching Toy Story and I got a phone call from him. He was at a meeting and he calls me and he says, would you be able to run Catbird Seat and move here in two weeks? And I said, yes, great. I'm coming to pick you guys up. We're going to come and go do a meeting. And so I, within two weeks, took over Catbird Seat. My wife's family's from Nashville, so there was a little more support than you would think in the area. I stepped into the role of executive chef. We prepped off-site at Bastion, actually, in Josh Habiger's kitchen um, for the weekend. I packed all of my mise en place up, walked into Catbird six years later than I had been there before. 
started unpacking and going through the fridges. I went downstairs for a drink at Patterson House. My wife was still in Cincinnati and I drive home. And that night, uh, a tornado rips through the city and we have a meeting at nine in the morning that I need to make back at Capard announcing that I would be the executive chef for the interim process before Brian Baxter steps in and that I was going to be doing it for a few months before I moved on to help open Locust, just as I had. <laughs> it was a bit surreal. Driving into the restaurant, the whole city was absolutely demolished from a tornado. Half the staff were late for the meeting to tell them that I was their new boss. One of them was actually working because they did the, a very early morning shift. She was a student and didn't even realize she was on staff. And so they didn't let her know. Uh, <laughs> and it was just a bit surreal. Um, and we opened without delay and we kept the restaurant open for a few weeks. It was my first anniversary. Instead of going to do the trip we were going to do, my wife came in for dinner. She still has the menu from that evening. So we, we were in Nashville and a few weeks later, the pandemic hit and all of a sudden everything shut down and we were in the midst of still moving everything over and the place we were going to stay decided not to allow us to stay there uh, with all of our stuff. And so we, we ended up staying with family about an hour south of Nashville um, and I'm very grateful for their generosity. It felt a little weird staying with family after, you know, so long of independence and especially my wife's family because we weren't super close. We were close, but not super close. So we were in Nashville and we were like idle and not doing anything. And I was trying to figure out, you know, what do we do? And had ideas of how to make a living in the meantime. I mean, I was, we were still making okay money and whatnot, but I just wanted to bring all my staff back. And so we built one of those hospitality relief programs with Strategic Hospitality as a partner, as well as a few other partners, including um, Rethink out of uh, New York, which was paired with 11 Madison Park, who I consulted on how they operated so that we could kind of have a better idea on how we would operate. Sean Brock and I also did a program where we fed a different community center every day and there was a drive-through meal thing and uh, a number of other restaurants uh, signed on to do that. And then we would do three different elderly homes which didn't have food services and offered free food drop-offs. And so we were cooking upwards of 10,000 meals until funding no longer applied to that, in which case we went back to restaurants. That whole time we were in Nashville, it, it almost felt like Nashville had changed. And for sure it had uh, both time growth of its economy and and obviously the pandemic having a huge impact on, on how people operated and what their beliefs were, were a little more shown on their shirts. And we just felt like we were constantly missing Cincinnati. And so when we were in Nashville and I was opening Locust, I knew I was going to open Locust and he knew I was only going to be there for a little while because my goal was to open a restaurant. We were navigating for about a year uh, the purchase of Lee's restaurant, which we had both worked at, and we were going to transition it into a restaurant called Malouse. And over time, uh, our funding backed out, the partners we were going to go into the project with backed out, and we were left kind of holding the bags and waiting to try get this kind of project we had drawn up open. Over time, it just never materialized and someone else took the space and we went for a meal there a month ago. It was incredible. We, we really love what it became. And, you know, it's a really positive, you know, star in our, in our city now called Nolia Kitchen. It's incredible. And we were doing ice cream pop-ups to try support ourselves when we were back and out of a little takeaway window. And that's not enough for three paychecks. Uh, so we, we made sure to, you know, transition away from that and credit cards stacked up. And so 
saw a restaurant opening and it was an oyster bar and I felt like, all right, it's time to take a job again. There were some great things that came out of that. We were able to, you know, afford to buy a house eventually. I was able to create a really great oyster program that kind of set off a few other people into the trajectory in their own respective spaces to open oyster programs in the city. I was able to train a number of people on how to properly store and and utilize oysters. And I was able to meet a lot of people that I hadn't met through my pop-ups or by being a behind-the-scenes chef at a restaurant in the city and really got to strengthen some, some great relationships, which is kind of where we're at now. I left there and decided to go back to doing pasta because everyone kept asking, when are you going to do it again? When are you going to do it again? And uh, we decided to build it into a bigger project. We started at Rooted. In early May, we were doing our pastas, a couple snacks, and a dessert. Now our menu kind of has shifted into a few other things, not just that. We're doing a number of private events. I collaborate with Heart and Crew, uh, a really great wine bar on their food services now. They're incredible. They're the most incredible professionals I could ever wish to work with. I bring them a few dishes every three months, and we have that on their menu regularly. They finish it in-house themselves, but I do all the production and, and have it dropped off. And then I do a number of events with them off-site, and I do a number of off-site events on my own, some weddings, and we're just navigating opening Wildweed, which is really what our focus is now. Taking a few steps back, a few questions to kind of fill in here. When you first kind of meet your wife, Lydia, and she's working as a chef and you guys wind up at Oakley Wines, did that make it easier for you guys, both being in the industry that you guys were both kind of on the same schedule, being able to not just spend time together outside of the kitchen, but also like work in the kitchen together? Yeah, absolutely. I'd never had a relationship that's as healthy as the one I have now. And that's probably based on the fact that, I mean, she's always been in kitchens too, and she knows the workload and she's held the workload herself. And she was working at Please before, and we were both working the same schedule, actually. We each have a night off separate, which was great, but we worked all week together. And that was also interesting because I'd never worked with a partner either. Did you overlap with Chris O'Hearn at Please at all? Yeah, Chris is amazing. Chris was my first friend in Cincinnati, actually. When you reached out about uh, doing the podcast, I actually reached out to him and was like, yes or no? And he gave a resounding yes. You don't need to worry. And that's why I said yes. So yeah, no, Chris was incredible. We live a few minutes away now. We were chatting this morning, actually. My first friend in the city, we've continued to be friends. We've done events together. We've done pop-ups most recently doing a dim sum pop-up where wine was also poured dim sum style. I think we learned a lot in that one on what not to do with wine surface, but it was incredible. It was a lot of fun. It was a room packed full of industry individuals just crushing wine and, and dim sum. And it was all kind of an ode to both of us having lived in the West Coast and missing a food that we love and trying to give a little love letter, not trying to do it better, just trying to respect and, and kind of show adoration to a community we used to be a little bit more part of. When you take over the 4.5 iteration of the restaurant at Catbird Seat, because every time there's a new chef and it's usually a two-year cycle on average, but it's always like, this is the next iteration, three, iteration four, whatever. You're kind of 4.5. Will and Liz leave kind of before COVID. It could have been related to COVID. It doesn't really matter. When you take over that restaurant that has this established name in Nashville, it's one of the best restaurants that was in the city at the time and then also is still there now. Do you feel any pressure taking that on where you're coming in? It's like short notice. You're trying to figure out everything, but you're trying to keep some continuity. But you also want to do stuff that you enjoy too. 
Yeah, I didn't focus on their menu at all. We deleted their whole menu. My role there was to make sure that the culture resumed positive and maintained staffing while continuing to execute at the caliber that the restaurant expects. I had seen a number of versions of the restaurant as well. I wasn't a stranger to the restaurant. I was pretty familiar with it. I'd been in the restaurant. I knew how it operated. I think the pressure was absolutely there, but it wasn't a pressure that was unattainable or too weighted to overcome. It was more of a challenge than anything. My biggest regret is not having been able to do the full three months. I feel like as a chef, I progress into a vision really fast and I was starting to get my footing, but without being able to fully do it as long as other chefs get to, I truly wasn't able to bring it to bring my vision as focused as other chefs have been able to. That's my only regret. I love the model. Part of what our model is moving into our own restaurant as an element of, of what I learned and experienced in two and iterations plus others as a diner in that restaurant. There's pressure, but when you've worked in the industry long enough and you've learned your own voice, I think it becomes easier to step into something that might have that pressure. The common thread is you're not going to be someone else. And so long as you're not someone else, all you can do is be the best you you can be. By doing that, I think when you're experienced enough and you've worked in the industry long enough, you can create dishes that are going to wow people just as much as any chef that walks into a space like that. That place is a canvas and it always has been a canvas for a reason. Anyone can put their imprint on it. When you first open Pearl Star and you're building out that oyster program, I read somewhere you were having oysters flown in every like 24 to 36 hours. Was that accurate? We were getting deliveries pretty much every day. We were bringing in about 3,200 oysters every week. I don't know the volume they're doing now. Since stepping away, I've kind of removed myself from some drama and some unnecessary stress that I didn't need in my life. We were going through four to six different suppliers every week. And so some oysters would be coming directly from a farm. Well, there's one in Pensacola that was really great that would come pressure washed beautiful. They almost look like kushi oysters. For anyone who knows oysters, these like deep cup, smooth shelled, tumbled oysters from the West Coast that never seem to really thrive beyond a few days outside of the West Coast, to me anyways. These were kind of like the South Coast version of those uh, that tasted like blue crab and celery. Yeah, we were getting those flown in overnight. We were getting things from Hamahama oysters 24 hours out of the water, all the way from Seattle uh, straight to, you know, or Lillooop straight to Cincinnati. Uh, we worked heavily with Island Creek oysters, which distributes overnight as well. FedEx does amazing things for restaurants these days, especially with oysters. Oyster farms can get their product in other people's hands across the country at a really, really good rate. Um, that still allows you to build really special oyster programs anywhere you are. This is something that probably didn't exist 10 years ago, but that through the wonders of kind of our global food system really has the opportunity to, to grow. I remember being a young cook at an old French restaurant in Winnipeg with a chef that used to have a Michelin star in France, and he would drive to the airport to go pick up oysters. It kind of reminded me of that, but they just get delivered every day. You know you're going to need six to 800 a night, and you build you know eight different items. I worked with two different suppliers that when each of those suppliers did not provide me uh, shellfish tags that were fresher than a week, I would lean on the other supplier and then they would lose all their sales. So I pitted two suppliers against each other to do the bulk of 50% of our oysters. And then I would fill the other 50% with special farms. That kind of pushed them to beat the best version of oysters they can give and got the best opportunities for our guests. 
you still want to move into a brick and mortar? That's still your end goal? Yeah, we're working on it. We're probably about 40% of the way funded to what we need to raise for the project already, which is far more than I could have said about any other project I've worked on in the past on my own, which is great. We have a number of the equipment already purchased. We already have an extruder. We already have a sheeter that arrived this morning. We're quite a ways on the liquor license application already. We have a space drawn out and we have 3D renderings of it. We're in the midst. We're pretty confident it's happening. It'll be in Cincinnati too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right in OTR over the Rhine. It's, we're looking at doing a small chef's counter and a medium-sized restaurant. With all your pop-ups that you've done, and you do a lot, I mean, even in Cincinnati, you just did one with Iris Reed and Dan Souter, who's been on this podcast, Heart and Crew, you mentioned you do some stuff with them. Silver Slipper, Wine Bar, and Dayton, you've done stuff with. When you do a pop-up, do you approach each one differently with a sense of never kind of doing the same dish twice? Or do you use each one to kind of maybe perfect a dish to the point where you're, you're like, okay, this is kind of the final form of it? kind of put it out a few different pop-ups and this is, I'm happy with it now. Like how do you approach menu creation? As I was mentioning at the start of the podcast, most things are a celebration of time and place. When I'm navigating building a menu, I'm looking at what's available around me before I'm writing a menu. I know that quince is in season. I know I did an incredible quince dish a couple of weeks ago. There was a few things I wanted to tweak on it. This is a good opportunity because they don't have you know certain equipment. I know this dish is going to work in a space like Iris Reed. So we brought a quince dessert back. As far as doing an event, my first pop-up outside of leaving Pearl Star uh, was on May 1st, and we did one at Heart and Crew. That was more probably stifled creativity through operating a restaurant that didn't allow me to fully bring my vision forward. And so I had some ideas that I wanted to do that were sitting in my pocket for a while. So we did a scallop dish. I had been bothered by, for about a year, we had done a little chef residency, myself and a friend at a restaurant called Niche Niche in, in New York. They're, they're a wine bar that has a rotating cast of sommeliers and occasionally they take on a chef. So Paul Liebrandt had done one before I had and then I had jumped in to do that. And then Ben Shuri's done one there. They have a number of local chefs doing stuff as well. It's a lot of fun. And uh, we had, you know, a four course dinner for all of their guests that changed both weekends that we did a takeover of their restaurant. That dish that I brought to Heart and Crew was in my pocket from that, but I wanted to perfect it. And it that was an olive oil poached scallop with preserved Jimmy Nardello peppers that have been charred and then pickled with a little uh, hibiscus butter sauce and uh, fermented cherry blossom. So sometimes it's a celebration of time and place. Sometimes it's this dish has been sitting in my pocket and I, it works seasonally again and I want to do this. Sometimes it's using an ingredient in a way we've used them in the past and just marrying it. But most often I write my menus a few days before um, and I try to hold off as long as I can. I don't print my menus some weeks until the day of the event in case I want to change something. With our pop-up that we do weekly, I, I really have that flexibility because no one's over my shoulder being like, you can't cook this or you can't cook that. And, or if I have truffles left over I can from another event, I can use them. Maybe I had something that I wasn't posting about that had truffles and I ordered too much and I, I want to use them in a dish and I can add them to the menu in that case. Or But usually, yeah, we don't print menus until we have to. 
dinners that we do with clients that have certain expectations of, oh, well, I want to see a finalized menu. We'll build a menu based on what we can imagine that season's going to look like. I do a number of like four course dinners with other people. So when something like that happens, it's, well, I know Quince is going to be available in a few weeks, or I know, you know, this squash is a really beautiful squash that'll be around for a couple months. If I preserve this now, I know I'll have it then. Will the name still stay the same? Is the wild wheat name reserved for the pop-up and when you actually open the restaurant, it'll be something else? The common area in our restaurant, the main dining room, wild wheat as a pop-up right now is the concept for that space. We are not trying to change what we're doing. So wild wheat is the name. And then our chef's counter is going to have a little bit more of an exclusive opportunity for people to dine in the city. And I'm assuming your wife is going to be in the kitchen with you working too? Yeah, she's likely going to be overseeing kind of guest relations as well, and then doing uh, part-time production in the restaurant. We also have a 15-month daughter, so both of us doing the actual all-day, every-day is, is not necessarily as feasible as we'd like, but uh, we'll have childcare a couple days a week, and she'll spend a couple days in the restaurant. And then the, the rest of her, her responsibilities will kind of lie on guest relations and making sure some of the back of scenes things are taken care of. So what is it about pasta? You know, because pasta has been a big part of your career. What is it that you kind of gravitated towards? And that's kind of like your preferred medium. Well, I think that it is a medium. It's such a blank canvas. That's the real answer. It's, it's such a blank canvas. It's a way to talk about farmers and a way to talk about grains and a way to talk about all of the cooking processes you can do through one channel. Whether it's, you know, fermentation and you're doing something, like I said, fermented cherry blossoms or, you know, white soy in a broth or, or whether it's this beautiful squash we got this week or a really fresh yuzu that we picked up or there's always a way that you can build it into the folds of what pasta is and to me the flexibility of that and the ability to talk about farmers and the ability to talk about different heritage grains and different qualities of grains and fresh milled flowers and freshly milled things from a farm that's really why i gravitated towards pasta as I started working with it, I really liked the rhythm of folding things and the details that go into creating something that's really, really, really well done. And the things that I kind of like about changing about pasta, because everyone who hears I'm doing a pasta thing or a pasta restaurant, the first thing they say is, oh, I love Italian food. I'm like, yeah, I'm not Italian. <laughs> I, had, I had someone who was looking to invest in restaurants and said, oh, my grandmother's got a great recipe for that. I don't care about your grandmother's recipe. I don't cook my grandmother's recipes. Truly, it's more about the conversation around farmers than anything. And it's satisfying. Not everyone loves Chinese food. Not everyone loves sushi. Not everyone loves Ukrainian food. But everyone kind of loves noodles and everyone loves pasta. It's being able to have that conversation without pulling people too far away from their comfort zone and kind of using it in a way where here's your beginner opportunity to have a conversation about a farmer's product in a way where you're not too turned off. You have a velo, which means bike tattooed on your fingers. Do you still ride your bike everywhere? I wish. Uh, that I probably got when I was 16 years old. My other hand, though, is the Four Seasons, and I still cook seasonally, so. Did you ever get your bike back that was stolen in Canada years ago? Never. I found another Marinoni, and it, just, uh, it never fit the same. I also have a Cramorati in, in Vancouver right now that I'm going to go pick up in January, so. My aunt's old bike. I had an uncle who raced. Back in uh, 2015, I think it was, you appeared on 
chopped Canada, what was cooking on TV like? I think the right answer to that is there's only so much you can say about cooking on TV because you've signed some pretty big documents. The experience was interesting, though. I'm not opposed to doing it again. I don't see the benefit for most of the people doing it. I did it at a time when I was, you know, young and looking to raise money for something and used it as an opportunity to have a free flight across the country to visit some friends and vacation from the restaurant that I was never, ever able to get away from. My family were a bit disappointed on some of the things that I talked about in the TV show. They said, these things are no longer relevant in your life. You know, you, everyone's got a sob story and mine included drugs and, uh, you know, a former lifestyle that I uh, left behind and don't really relate to. I can see where they come from. It was an interesting experience. I recommend doing it to anyone who's curious about the behind the scenes of how television operates. You do a lot of mushroom foraging too. How do you know what's edible? Well, it's just like fishing, especially when you start out. They don't call it catching. They call it fishing. Uh, you don't always find things when you're going in the woods. And you don't always find the things you're looking for when you go into the woods. There's often times when I'm looking for a certain mushroom and I'm actually coming out with a pile of something else. For me, I got into it. I took a course. I don't even know what year it was, but I was probably around 21. And I did a course on Salt Spring Island at a farm. It was Michael Abelman's farm, which would have been called Foxglove Farm on Salt Spring Island. And it was with Bill Jones, I believe his name was. And Bill Jones was a classic forager in the area that celebrated mushrooms. And he took us out on a forage and, and a course. And I think we found one chanterelle, the whole, like the whole team found one mushroom. And I could probably tell you, like, he wasn't really bringing us into somewhere very good for picking mushrooms. I just kind of had the had an interest peaked when I went home when I was running that hotel. It was kind of a reprieve. And I, I would go into the woods on my day off and we would find 50 pounds of chanterelles and maybe another 75 pounds of lobster mushrooms in a day to the point where I was actually uh, booking days off so that I could go out into the bush more often because I was making more money selling mushrooms to other chefs than I was at a hotel, which is really the only time I've ever done it for sale. And now it's kind of like anytime I have my daughter and we have a day off and my wife needs space, I'll go for a hike. A week or two ago, we found a, a 35 pound chicken of the woods mushroom and she was strapped to my chest. So getting that out of the woods took two trips, uh, one of which I had to take my shirt off to tie the arms and the, uh, the neck to turn it into a bag. And I went out shirtless out of the woods and with my baby strapped to me as, as my shirt. Sometimes you score and sometimes you don't. There's a few spots that I've found around the area that I consistently find things in. This year, I was able to find some really great pawpaw groves as well. If you're familiar with pawpaws, they're the only temperate tropical fruit that kind of grows around here. They're kind of like a mango and banana custard um, cross almost. They're incredibly delicious. There's a festival surrounded around them. And, you know, we preserve them for dinners that are going to come up eventually. What was the hardest part about becoming a permanent resident of the U.S.? Waiting. I would say the silence. I would say I'm still a conditional resident, although the silence has continued through that process because I have been eligible to be a permanent resident for over a year now. Uh, they still haven't gotten to my paperwork, but conditional resident means the same thing as permanent resident. It's just an extension. In your first two years, you get a permanent, you get your conditional and then your conditions get removed. Yeah, the hardest part was waiting and I'm hoping to get the answer soon. COVID is a large part of the delay and there's a number of other reasons why things get delayed. 
I have no doubts in my mind that the conditions were uh, approved. I have a baby. I have a house. I, I have all the things that you would assume someone who lives here with their partner would have. And now I have a second family member who's American. So it's not going to be a concern. The strange part about the whole process is I can actually apply for citizenship before I even get my permanent residency because of the delay. I can just pile the paperwork on top of each other. What's next for you professionally? Obviously, you're working towards opening the restaurant. You got to probably, I'm assuming, a bunch of pop-ups and events coming up. Anything else on the horizon? It's holiday season, so everything that happens from here to to January, and uh, you mentioned this might be aired in in December. Uh, so we're we're about yeah the next two months, I would say month and a half is is wild weeded with events. We've pretty much got about three to four events a week. My wife also does private chef stuff, so we're kind of keeping it just consistent and trying to make as much as we can. On a personal note, I'll be traveling back to Vancouver in January for the first time since I moved away. My wife will see it for the first time and my daughter will as well. So we're pretty excited about that and reconnecting with a number of friends. Really, all of our focus right now is in, in opening our restaurant and, and, and moving that along. We're hoping for a spring-summer open. If it gets delayed, that's fine, hopefully sooner than later. And really just focus a little more on building our gardens at our house a little bigger after that, and focusing on our house rather than career stuff. I'm in no rush to open seven or eight places. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with just having one place I can tell stories in and building a community around it. Our project's pretty exciting. We're trying to re-navigate how we're going to have the ability to pay staff because after opening Pearl Star, you realize what people's expectations are in this kind of modern day and, and what you need to do as an employer to try get them the things they need. It's a little trickier. Having a chef's counter will allow us to kind of have a little bit more creativity with that and, and have some ability to give people the, the things they need financially, but also creatively. We're looking to create a restaurant in this area that I think it really doesn't exist at the moment. We're looking to create something that's kind of a place that's going to allow cooks and professionals in our industry to grow without having to change the market they work in. For me, I always found like, you know, the restaurants that were in, in my area were great to a certain point. And then I needed to leave and grow into a different market so that I can learn new tricks. There's a lot of people here that won't ever do that. And if they aren't given the opportunity to grow and eventually grow into their own places, they're just going to leave the industry and find a different trade. And I think right now, the most important thing we can do is, as business owners, as business operators, as chefs, as leaders, as managers, sous chefs, even as colleagues is trying to make sure that each other, that we have, you know, the tools to make sure that people can continue in this craft, because otherwise, we're just not going to have the spaces that we need. And the longer I'm in this industry, the more I realize that we don't offer the hospitality that we offer to our guests to each other enough. And so changing that narrative and trying to create environments where we can offer the same hospitality to each other and the same kindness to each other and, and try to do the same things or for our teammates that we do for our guests will help our restaurants grow and our communities grow. And, and so really being in this city, I, I don't want someone who was in my situation when I moved here four years ago now to not have the opportunities to grow themselves. So this next question comes from previous guest on the podcast, Chef Eric Gabernowicz. He's the executive chef and a VP of culinary over at Tupelo Honey, which just opened their first location here in Columbus. He left behind for you. What was the moment that you realized being a chef 
could be your career in the long term and who else was there in that moment? There was a guy named Randy Madsen who no longer works in the industry at all. I think he's a landscaper. Maybe wrong. Sorry. I don't think he's going to hear this podcast. So I'm not too worried. We were out by the smoking loading dock. I don't smoke anymore either. So there's a measure of how long ago that could have been. He said the reason I got into this industry was so I can travel and so I can see new places, but never not have a job. It was the moment I realized that even though I had so many desires to leave my hometown and get away from Dodge, that I was going to be able to make a career out of it. That was the moment when I started taking it a bit seriously. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? If you could change one thing you've done in your career, what would it be? This next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, why do you think the food scene in Canada is so overshadowed by the food scene in America? I mean, I know why it is. I think that the media in Canada kind of keeps to itself. There's about five markets that are worth working in as a chef, and it's pretty incestuous. There's only really five markets that have restaurants that get written about. Whereas in America, you have, you know, 30, maybe some of them much larger than the five that are in Canada with a lot more money that flows through them, uh, where publications get written about these restaurants and these communities a lot more prominently that have bigger budgets. And you have television shows that are being filmed by places here that reach Canada, but the things that are filmed in Canada only really relate to five markets. And so they don't make it to America as often. That was always something that appealed to me to the working in America versus working in Canada. I love both countries, but, you know, we all have benefits and downsides as well to, to each. I think it's just more money and more publications and more publicists and more people talking about food in this country because of the sheer volume of people. What are the five? It'd be Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, but what would be the other two? Definitely Ottawa as well. I say five because I see Winnipeg as one because I'm from there, but I don't think other people maybe would. Ottawa for sure, maybe Edmonton or Calgary, but no, Calgary's got a pretty good food scene, I would say. Calgary probably outweighs Winnipeg for sure. So we got this last set of questions we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, a nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far? Culinarily, that mentor that I spoke about before, Andrea Carlson, she introduced a number of ingredients and ways of approaching food that I had never had from a manner of how I hold myself and, and the standards I hold myself to would definitely go to someone who I've only met a few times through his kitchen, single thread Kyle Connaughton, because he shared with me some really great wisdom that I've carried since our conversations that could not be unlearned and have changed me as a person tremendously through business side of what we do. Probably my longtime friend, Doug Steven, who was the owner of Merchant's Oyster Bar, was a manager of mine at a young age and continues to be someone I, I look to for advice whenever I need it. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? No, you can take any of them away. It's fine. I'll find a way. A restaurant you recommend that isn't your own. So scenario I usually give person gets stuck at the airport, like I canceled, whatever. They reach out to you. Hey, stuck uh, overnight. Got to go grab a bite to eat. Where should I go? You kind of point them in this direction. Al Medina, incredible shawarmas. They make tandoor style flatbreads right in front of you. It's a takeout shop, really great shawarmas. They make their own hot sauce. And I've survived on their food most weeks 
two to three meals a week. And when our daughter was born, we had it delivered to the hospital. Whenever we came to town, it would be the first and last spot we visited before going back to Nashville when we were living there. Bucket list travel destination and bucket list restaurants. A place you haven't visited yet, but you still want to travel to and then place you have not eaten at, but you still want to get to and dine at one day. Paris. I tried to move there a couple of times and I've never even traveled there. That's definitely a bucket list for me. Normally, I, I kind of stick to North American travel just because of the price and cost. When I can afford it, it'll probably be Paris, both to see you know where the history of food and French food came from, but also to see what's happening in its current iteration and, and form and all the neo bistros and adventurous chefs that they have now and, and how they're kind of bucking that tradition and being supported in their own way. And seeing that would be really incredible. As far as that goes, I, I'd say probably SIP team in Paris. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Overdose in the bathroom while a deep fryer's frying over because they just conked out. It wasn't pretty. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything candy, fast food that you know is super unhealthy for you, but you just can't uh, stay away, just can't help yourself? I don't actually eat a lot of fast food. If I do, it's because I'm stretched too thin and just need to grab something on the go. Honestly, like I don't like it. It's not a pleasure at all. It's more just guilty. It's like, ah, I'm just too busy. And there's no one spot that I'm like, oh, I love this place. Beverage-wise, cider, sake, things like that. I think they're very underrepresented. I'm not someone who's like supportive of fast food or cares about it. It doesn't have to be fast food, but is there anything it's just kind of like your go-to, even if it's like a snack? I can give you a go-to snack. Go-to simple snack is like a tuna mayo rice rolls, kind of like making a cheap man's tonado, but whipping different flavorings into it. And I usually make the rice with a little dashi powder in it so that it's dashi rice and then just seaweed snacks and just pop it with furikakes. That's my quick, easy meal. Favorite Instagram account you follow? So the one that gets some enjoyment out of it, you don't really skip it. Favorites are hard. You see through my food that I'm not really someone who chooses favorite ingredients either. It's a set of colors. I don't think I have one. Favorite dish, favorite thing you kind of cooked, created? Kind of looking back over your career, you can kind of point to this dish that you you know created, cooked as kind of your aha moment. Like you knew you could be a professional chef. It's a Dungeness crab dish that I did in Vancouver, and it's taken a few iterations. I had it on the menu at Capward Seat, and I'm actually cooking it next week for a private dinner. It's a congee, essentially, made with um, gnocchi mushroom stems, cut like rice, uh, folded in with Dungeness crab, and then uh, crab chunks in drawn butter with um, a sauce made from the shells and mounted with the roe and seasoned with a little apple cider. And so that's all emulsified in uh, with a bunch of butter and foamed up. That kind of gets layered. Uh, the crab congee gets cooked. I add a little tarragon and ramp butter um, into the congee at the end. And the crab is indistinctable between the gnocchi mushroom texture and the crab pieces. You just taste crab fully with that couple pieces of crab on top of it with drawn butter. And then that foam that kind of covers it. And it's a dish that you like. You look at it and you're like, what the fuck is this? You can't really see any of the dish besides a foam that's covering it and hiding it all. And as you dig in, it's a satisfying bowl of crab. I'm a Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. Uh, if you were, is there a moment, episode, scene from uh, him, his time that uh, always stands out to you that you remember? Or if you weren't, was there anybody who was on TV, a culinary personality that you kind of always gravitated towards when you were coming up through your career? Uh, Emerald or uh, Julia Child or, you know, Yen Ken Cook, anything like that? 
I mean, I will say that my father wasn't the greatest person in, in the world. He cooked as well before I did many years before. He never made it as far as I did in my career, but I would grow up watching Emeril in his basement suite with my two sisters. And it was the only escape I had. Maybe that drug me into the industry. But no, my favorite Anthony Bourdain moment really was the one that kind of inspired me to travel Asia. And it was his travels in Vietnam, which were obviously a favorite of his as far as countries to visit. It was his first travels to Vietnam that inspired me to find Vietnamese food and then to be the first destination I actually traveled to as a chef. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. We don't have a website at the moment. I'm holding off until last minute to build something really special. But uh, you can catch us at our um, social media, uh, which is Wildweed Cincy, W-I-L-D-W-E-E-D-C-I-N-C-I. Or you can follow me at Chef David Jackman. And if people want to reach out to you about private events, uh, get on your calendar for February or whatever, just go through the Instagram. You can start the conversation uh, through my Instagram DMs, either with the restaurant or with my personal one. Uh, either one, I will contact you back and, and provide you with an email to reach out to. And you guys are still doing the pop-up at uh, Mighty Good on Sundays, 1 to 7? Yeah, we're doing it from 1 to 7 at the moment. It may, by the time it has aired, actually change to 1 to 9. It was on our list of places to visit. You know, we were supposed to be down in Cincinnati on uh, December, but we had to schedule it back and uh, move it back to February. So hopefully the pop-up is still running in February and we'll be able to uh, try some of the pasta and everything firsthand. I've seen pictures and, and obviously the Iris Reed pop-up that you just did and the food looks amazing. There's nothing else really like it in the Cincinnati market, I don't feel. I don't think there's anything in the market regionally even, I would say the different colors and stuff that you play with too as well definitely unique it looks delicious it seems like you know the past few pop-ups based on the instagram feedback and everything that people have loved it so super excited to try it and uh looking forward to you guys getting your own standalone restaurant open sometime next year for sure keep a lookout likely be in columbus doing an event at the end of the year right before jumping on this podcast i was actually asked if i wanted to do something new year's eve so Stay in touch. If you need anything, let us know. I'm always an open invitation for when you guys get your restaurant open or get closer to that. You want to come back on the podcast and talk about the process or whatever. You know, we want to support you guys as much as we can. Definitely looking forward to making some of the pop-ups that you have coming up in the next month or two, trying some good pasta. Thanks. Great to meet you. Thanks for having me. Again, a big thanks to David for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his kind of busy holiday schedule. He's got a bunch of different events and stuff lined up. So being able to come on the podcast, talk about his career, working in Vancouver, which again is one of our favorite cities. Can't wait to go back. But also working in Nashville, working in Cincy, you know, the Capbird Seed, Please. All this stuff is overlap with Chris O'Hearn, who's been on the podcast at Please, a restaurant that we miss and is, I think, sorely missed within the Cincinnati scene that they got a great replacement there with Nalia and Jeffrey Harris and everything. But, you know, Ryan Santos, I think he's out west uh, making some wine now. Yeah, it was a really special place and it was a great restaurant that they had there in Cincinnati and was the best restaurant in the city per Cincinnati Magazine, like right before COVID. So be on the lookout, you know, like I said, for updates from David. Uh, they're working on the restaurant concept. They got space lined up, as he mentioned. So that should be opening, looks like kind of next year. Uh, the Aperture with Jordan Anthony Brown is also going to be opening too. So we've got some cool restaurants on the way in Cincinnati. Keep an eye out, but make sure to follow them on Instagram at Chef David Jackman and also at Wild Weed Cincy. And that's C-I-N-C-I, -I, not the Y. 
you can find those accounts on Instagram. Make sure to follow us there too as well at Spoon Mob. Check out our website, spoonmob.com, and make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast on whatever your preferred podcast platform is. Appreciate everybody listening. If you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, appreciate your continued support and listenership. Uh, we got more great episodes on the way. We got really cool stuff in the works too as well. Super excited uh, about one of the episodes we have coming up. It's something I've wanted to do for a long time. It's pretty unique, pretty out of the box. I don't think anybody's really expecting it. So pretty excited for that to uh, get released to you guys too as well. So you can kind of hear that conversation. Like I said, make sure to check out Wildweed. Uh, you can find them in the OTR at Mighty Good Sundays 1 to 7. And they also do pop-up events around Cincinnati. And they're going to have some stuff up here in Columbus. And any place within driving distance, you know, you can probably wind up finding them doing an event once they kind of link up with some people. So. That is it for this week, and we will talk to you guys next week.